and welcome to Through the Pinard, your conversational podcast talking to midwives around the world about the research they are doing to improve midwifery practice. This research can range from small quality improvement programs and projects to those starting partway through or just finishing their postgraduate studies and to those that have been there, done that and got the t-shirt. So settle back and enjoy the conversation. And remember, you can continue the conversation on Twitter after you finish listening. Thank you very much for joining me. As per usual, can you introduce yourself, please? Thanks so much for inviting me, Liz. My name is Rosalind Donlan-Fernandez, and I'm a midwife of almost 30 years now and uh, completed my PhD um, toward the end of 2016 at Flinders University in South Australia. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. So how did you get into midwifery in the first place? Sure. I guess um, I I had a life before um, the health sector, but I did uh, come to the health sector initially as a nurse And I came to midwifery actually from a mental health nursing background because the services I was working in at the time, um, which involved community services as well, um, actually had a specialised mother-baby unit um, for people who were acutely unwell um, uh, post-birth and pregnancy um, in relation to mental health issues. That was an area of strong interest early on. But also my other interest, I guess, is very much in terms of the status of women and and women's health issues. And really, that's what um, what led me to to midwifery. Was it what you thought it would be when you're going through your, and I'm trying not to say education, um, training, because that's an old word. It's when you're going through your midwifery education, was it what you thought it was or was it more or less? Well, that's a great question, Liz, because our training, education, yes, the words we use and select are quite interesting. But certainly I am um, of an ilk and an age where I went through a hospital-based training and it was very much a training. Um, And I did, I was rejected several times trying to get into that training. Um, which was an interesting experience. And I was told very clearly at the time to advised um, by some insiders to uh, that I should um, dress a particular way, um, say particular things oh. and not say other particularly radical things about the status of women and other views that were dear to my heart at the time. And um, I might have more of an opportunity to um, get inside the institution. So on the third occasion, that's what I did. And um, I very soon wanted to leave the institution after that. I hadn't myself um, had uh, necessarily any plans to have... um, to have babies at that point in my life, but certainly seeing what I saw convinced me that I definitely didn't want to be having any either and not under the conditions um, that I saw many other women birthing and, and being treated. And it wasn't for me, so so that, you know, the personal is political. And for me, that experience, I should say at the time, 
education. Education is really important. Concurrently, I was undertaking a um, a master's in women's health mm-hmm. at the same time I was yep. um, being exposed to the institutionalised or socialisation um, skilling that w- that was going on at that particular time. This is the early 1990s. And it wasn't really, it definitely wasn't until I extracted myself from that and moved back into a more community-based primary health model um, with, at that time, what were quite um, marginalised uh, midwifery professionals were working in that space in the community. It wasn't common um, for people to be working, for midwives to be working autonomously, providing the full spectrum of care across the continuum yeah. um, and and being reimbursed oh. <laughs> on the Medicare. Trying to make a living out of it, yeah. Yes. So, um, but that education was in stark contrast to, to the other education I was... Um, experiencing at the time and each of those things were in informing really the other was there so when you're kind of I mean I was hospital trained nurse back in that kind of era um time as well so very much it was training a little bit of education and then throw you out and you're part of you were the workforce what was the philosophy of midwifery being taught back then like because when we look at what we're trying to teach now to the way it's actually run in hospitals, it can be quite opposite. Yeah, I think at at that time, um, again, for people who perhaps feel quite secure within um, contexts of practice um, that are highly regulated and where norms and behaviours among different professional groups are clearly delineated and are very, um, shall I say, perhaps hierarchical, or they they certainly were then. Um, Some people feel very secure within those sort of settings and look, that sort of medical medicalised context, I guess I'm speaking about, in relation to birth um, and and pregnancy um, care for women was still very dominant at that time although what was emerging um, in the broader space and in society at the time were women, when I say women, I I use that term broadly, or groups of women in the Australian community who were objecting uh, vocally in in the political space about some of those services and and asking for um, for different sorts of services that respected them as women, that gave them choices and options for care, based on relationships um, and less medicalised care that supported the normal physiology um, of pregnancy and birth. And that was actually really very a social model that included their whole family yeah. and that, you know, was underpinned by respect. And all those things sound really basic, um, but for many women um, and many women uh, in different groups and from different backgrounds in society, that certainly wasn't the experience they were voicing in the public and political realm, mm. or at least the voices that were loudest in those spaces and asking for change. And for me at that time, I significantly remember, um, it, you know, in terms of the broader women's women's health movement, the 1989 Alternative Birthing Services um, funding that was um, announced that was just prior to my um, 
uh, for finally, yes, get, getting in to, to be accepted to do my training that I then, <laughs> then had to extract myself out of to broaden my, my knowledge and skill base. So how did all of that experience, looking back now, having had, as you said, 30 years in the career, how do you think that influenced you into what you have subsequently done over the last few decades? Yes, I think for the the more I go on in my life and the more I reflect and am exposed to different um, views and ideas and, you know, cri- and critically able to critically reflect on those and debate those in a variety of forums, I think the, for me, the, the status of a woman, wherever she lives and whatever ethnic background or culture that the person is from is integral to um, the person's treatment uh, across a variety of domains in society and particularly in relation to pregnancy and childbirth. And education is critical. We know, we see it um, across the globe in terms of changing the positioning um, of women in relation to that. And I know for, and, and I come from a very privileged, you know, background in terms of having access to various forms of yep. education. And clearly having access to that and having the opportunity to read, to debate, um, and to have knowledge exchange with different people and in different places, you know, the the um the higher education sector and with different colleagues um, and people from different backgrounds in different countries that those opportunities afforded me, it gave a much broader perspective mm-hmm. than than my yeah. own. Um, and that that's probably, I think, for me, that it's one of the motivators and continues to be one of the motivators, you know. F- for for change um, because clearly for me it was about, well, there's lots of people that are unhappy with the way things are and, in fact, I don't want to work, um, I didn't want to work in the models of care at that time as they were um, set up and I chose to work in very different models of care um, that, that were quite marginalised at that time but that women were asking for and, um, and that have now become... Um, a little more accessible to yeah. some groups, um, but they're certainly not the dominant paradigm and they are not equally accessible for all. Um, and that really motivated me um, in terms of further, both further study, um, but, but also in the work, I guess, that I did and have done in a variety of of sectors. So I I wanted to get out of the institution. I did step away and out um, and provide services in the community, um, mentored by other uh, midwives. And then I stepped back into the system, if you like, or institution as well, when a whole variety of other issues arose in those spaces that made it difficult both politically um, and from a workforce perspective to be able to continue to work in that way. The the indemnity insurance crisis in the early 2000s was critical um, for me moving back into the public health system. and then seeking to expand service access for, for broader groups of women um, to the sort of services they, they wanted, relationship-based care, continuity of care, which we have a very strong evidence base mm. 
for now for for all women, but again, the access is is not um, equal and not there. And from a health system perspective, I think we are doing ourselves a disservice. Um, the message for the decision makers is that accelerating and scaling up these services will really deal with a lot of health equity issues yeah. and address um, at, a, at a core and pivotal point in at start of life, um, many other disadvantages, um, not only health disadvantage, other social determinants of mm. health um, and access in social inclusion, um, it will improve uh, individual prospects and the prospects of families which make up communities, um, which, you know, is really powerful in terms of both the public health uh, perspective, but also at the personal level of changing mm. the trajectory, you know, of an, of an individual's life and, and their family's life. And, and generation, I think that's one of the biggest frustrations, and, and especially when you look at research as well, that research goes to the big, the big kind of the big sexy things that you can test and have an outcome in a three-year period, which is basically an election period cycle but with a lot of women's health and maternity it's you've got the gestation period you've got the pregnancy period you have the birth you have the postnatal period you have the first 1000 days and funding is like what goes beyond election cycle and we can't wait that long but if you're then talking true intergenerational change then you're waiting 25 40 years and it's frustrating because we know that the consequences are there, but we can't get the interest in it and the funding to kind of like prove that what we're saying is right. Agree on <laughs> all those points, yes. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the challenge. Is It's the ongoing challenge, yeah. um, which is a hard uh, path. It feels like a hard path sometimes. And for particular um, communities or areas, you know, with, with with our access to data that we have now mm. in this day and age, and not only in high resource countries, but in lower resource countries as well, we can actually see, or, you know, interrogate that data to see the, the difference that some of these interventions, and they're not high cost interventions either, yep. can make um, pr profound differences um as you say across the across the life course and the, that sort of decision making you know needs and commitment you know but both funding but also health system change mm. um, and behavior change um, as well um takes a long time often to to translate you know that that gap between mm. providing the research and then moving uh, moving it into reality or or change. I keep reading. Seventeen years is still the common term for that translational gap, which is ridiculous. And it's that's kind of that is a generation, really, when you think about it, in kind of going through. And it's finding ways to close that gap. So, and that's why I'm hoping, like podcasts like this, and the more as we we're talking before, the way that of getting information out that people have access to even if it's through the phone, just through the internet, and they can easily download something. Hopefully that change will occur more frequently, but also in a faster rate. Yeah, I agree. that Because 
that capacity to spread the word or the knowledge to get the trans or to reduce the translation time, yeah, is is very important. Um, and I think you know I had a conversation recently you, in terms of work that I'm involved in now or postdoctoral work um, in relation to you know expanding or attempting to expand and accelerate uptake of continuity of care uh, models, particularly for priority population groups. Um, one of my colleagues uh, said to me um, after a recent presentation, at which there was high interest from different um, areas around the country, and they said, you know what's interesting, though? Everyone wants a quick fix. They want the recipe to make it happen. and our message is not that. The message is this is about local action and community um, engagement because one size does not fit all and what is important and, and a priority within one community and the process for um, achieving change is actually quite different um, across different areas of the country for, for many different reasons. Um, you want it, I mean, it's, it's like comparison of a, a two-minute microwave noodle meal compared to slow food when you've got the whole process and it's done from scratch and, and it's it's got everyone's individual kind of components to it. Um, yeah, very frustrating when you're trying, but it all also comes down to money when we're looking at it because there's a healthcare system which everywhere and I think internationally is broken on so many different levels that even trying to implement anything new with a system that doesn't work, and we've seen it in so many countries with different reports coming through, and COVID just blew the lid off all of the Band-Aids that had been plastered over for several decades. So it's trying to change it whilst trying to survive and the workforce is just exhausted. Yes, and there, therein is another challenge, the work, the workforce. And I think maintaining the, you know, the impetus, the motivation and the hope mm. um, for that strategic and broader system level change is really quite, quite key and critical because it, it is easy to just feel exhausted at, at many times and think, well, where to next? And I had, if I may, or just, yeah. you know, it's interesting, the little um synchronicity or whatever you want to call it, how things happen. But recently, that same conversation I had um, that I related uh, with one colleague, I was fortunate at the same event to um, to meet up with another colleague and former student whom I haven't seen for probably, well, I haven't seen them since 2016 when they were um, completing their master's at yep. um at a university you know well and I was <laughs> integrally involved with with them and it was so exciting to speak um, with them because their message to me was all that knowledge um, that happened at that point this is what I'm doing now and and what that person is doing now in their um um, country, which would be considered a lower resourced country, yep. is Feel they free to plug them. Feel <laughs> free to plug them. Absolutely. Well, they are one of our nearest neighbours, you know, in PNG. Yep. And um, they are now managing the um, undergraduate midwifery um, program. They had ten of their students with them um, at the midwifery conference, um, sponsored by um, United Nations Population Fund. Yep. 
And the story that they showed was absolutely fabulous of these uh, trainee midwives um, doing primary health care, comprehensive health care with very little um, resource. But the message of hope and the change that's happening in those communities is absolutely phenomenal. And quite interestingly, um, since that event, I got another little uh, message from the person going, here's one of the students, Rosalind. This is what they were up to (laughs) Um, yesterday. Triplets, one, two, three, (laughs) lined up with a very young very young looking mother I'm not sure how and she said that's what the student has managed um, in the last 48 hours and the critical point I guess the thing she said to me was you don't realize um, at the time sometimes the difference that knowledge is going to make nor how long it will take to translate but when it does and when it comes um, it can create a really um, a really powerful effect so again for me you know yeah when you in those times when you think this is so hard stories like that where you can actually see the translation um, of education and the linkages the linkages between people place education and that capacity to change because they are are doing good change mm. and they've got a lot more planned and coming um, is a wonderful thing to see and it gives you the momentum I think to you know to keep going, keep going. absolutely tough I, I put those type of um, emails into I call it a brag file so when I'm having a real shitty day or it's just I want to quit <laughs> I go through that brag file. <laughs> And I will read them again, which is like that's nothing. Having been teaching for far too many years now in nursing and midwifery, nothing excites me better than when I see someone who was a student, who's now a graduate, who has now exceeded my knowledge in an area and is now leading new junior staff through and sit back and go, I had a little part in watching that happen and seeing them spread it through to the next generation. It's like, that is what, yeah, keeps me going. I think that's just the best feeling in the world. Agree. And look, it's so humbling because the the conversation we, we were having at the event we were at was your students can teach our students things, that yep. our students can teach your students things. And I thought, gee whiz. Of course, they can uh, on a whole oh. lot of levels, including how to walk two days to the village um, mm. that those students walk to to provide the services. Um, and that story, when it was told, it was it was um, yeah, it did nearly bring tears to my eyes because <laughs> my colleague, she said they they were dropped off by their transport after a sort of one day trip, and that were told this is as far as we go it's at least another nine hours to get to where you need to go and you'll have to do it on foot and she said well I turned to the 10 students and said can you walk and she said they looked at me and said can you (laughs) (laughs) yes and she said they walked they were and she said we we arrived and she said you know it was tiring they were hungry they were tired and of course 
she said we had to sit down with the community and we um, also had to, um, it, it's a faith-based community, she mm-hmm. said, so we we um, we did the prayers and the blessings, she said, and then we were told, right, down to work, <laughs> straight up, she said, so so she said, so they all, I had to get them in their uniforms and we started delivering service yeah. right, right yeah. then. And, you know, it just, it's a stark contrast to um, some of the places and contexts of practice mm. and challenges, you know, that, that we have in our setting. But nevertheless, it's, it's really inspiring. Uh, yeah, I think that's why I like the opportunities for um, communal get-togethers from countries because we do learn so much from each other that we can take it so for granted here with our technology and our very high resources, we can forget about what we're actually the rationales we're doing it instead of just following an algorithm or a protocol. But sitting down and talking to people and kind of going, right, you, okay, so the nearest help that you've got, and in the Philippines, this was really obvious when I went to one of the um, islands up in Antique. And to get to the island, it's a 20-minute boat trip. And so the women who were pregnant on the island could stay there until they were, I think, 34 weeks. And then they had to go to the mainland for four weeks. And if they had any complications, they then had to go to another hospital that they could do treatment for. And then postnatally, it depended on how rough the seas were, whether the midwife could actually get out on the little boat. Because if the rough seas were too much, then she couldn't actually get out to actually see them postnatally. So you just sit there and kind of go, yeah, nah, just drive in city. But we also have <laughs> in the cities who have the same issues because they've got lack of transport issues, going back to social determinants of care, going back to equ- equity um, and knowledge. So it happens within every city as well as within different countries. Yes, it, it does. And, you know, if you look at a national context in Australia, our um, our rural you know, remote, but also our regional areas are ripe for um, for expansion of mm. continuity of midwifery care services, those skilled services that can, um, you know, deliver better outcomes to women in, in those communities rather than some of what is happening with cl- service closures and lack of access to safe care and, you know, roadside birth, all, all the issues that we all um, have been talking loudly about probably for the last, yes, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, and that's it. Sometimes things haven't changed. They have improved, but not necessarily consistently in all areas. Um, So after you kind of did your independent practice, you went back into the healthcare system again. How did you kind of then move into research um, into kind of like that type of area? What kind of got you interested in research yeah yeah fr- frustration probably <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the story of my life Ob- you know obstacles so so you confront a problem or a challenge and you think well well what 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 can we do about this you know what what's a solution or what's a positive approach or something a way of tackling this and I know for me, yes, when I was invited um, back into the public system, and that was a wonderful opportunity where we set up a, um, and there'd been 10 year of work before we came to it as well, preparatory work, laying the foundation um, for for that uh, p- public sector service um, in, in South Australia. 
it was to provide, you know, content and and to implement and expand access to continuity of care um, model and relationship-based care for women and for women not only of uh, with healthy pregnancy and but for women with complexities as well who certainly benefit um, and require access to these services. I mean, all, all women should have access. And for me, it was always um, about that. So after sort of four, four or five years of expanding that service um, and workforce and a, a safe service that was um, well respected uh, by the community and wanted by the community, but but uh, provided service for women of uh, varying um, varying complexity in their pregnancy in collaboration um, with a multidisciplinary team. As needed, yep. Yep, as needed. Um, we sort of got to an expansion point where it was like, right, you've got enough now, no more. And, of course, the access to those services was happening at other um, health and hospital service and sites in the state. But, again, it wasn't anywhere near what was required to meet the demand. Um, and for me, that was incredibly frustrating because when you are operationally on the ground and within those services, who gets to manage the complaints or who do women come to yep, when, yep. when they can't get into the service that they've had their last three or four or five babies with and, mm. and their midwife or team of midwives, um, they get very cranky um, and it does seem very um unfair or where women are screened out geographically because there's not enough service to, yep. to, to meet need. And so by default, they, they get the default option, which might be, um, you know, no relationship-based care or standardised service. And look, we all understand re resources are limited and there is, mm. um, there is a limit to services that can be provided. But again, um, this is about finding the solution. <laughs> Absolutely. Or finding the argument to 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 assist decision makers to to move forward with the solutions that will create change and really list to um, that's that's what led me into my PhD um, because at that time I have a slightly different view now um, but at that time to me it was like okay if we can make a Clearly, the outcomes are better for these women, not only the um, the healthy women with healthy pregnancies, but particularly this group um, having complex pregnancy as well. Um, it's also got to make better economic sense. So for me, I wanted to make an economic argument at, at mm -hmm. the time, um, and that's what led me to the the cost and resource study of um, of women with complex pregnancies um, who received continuity of midwife service as compared to those who didn't. Um, but again, economics is only one aspect to, to the <laughs> That's an important, an important one, though, in the business world. It, it is important to be able to make those arguments um, as well as, as other arguments. And, and workforce, you raised earlier, is another critical um, tenant or piece of, of, of the jigsaw, you know, providing or arranging uh, service models in a way that workforce mm. uh, is able to be um, motivated and sustained and, and committed to, to working mm. in, because that is a very big issue now, and not only within midwifery and nursing, but within medical services ac across the board. I think COVID has 
um, brought a lot of lessons on that front. A lot of rebalancing of life priorities too. Yeah. So can I ask, what have you changed since then? You said that you think differently now. So what has changed in the time since you've done that PhD to, to change your mind? I okay well when you um we can all we can at different times look at the world you know with rose color glasses or think right I've got I've got I'm on a strategy now I'm on a strategy for a solution to this problem and again that that motivates us to yep. be committed to that and then we can reflect on that or other people can throw the challenges at us and go well that's all very well and good but what about you know what about the workforce mm. what about those um what about us? And one thing, workforce, you know, midwives are mainly um, women. Mm-hmm. We do have some great uh, male midwives and, and other persons um, who may identify differently as well um, with within the profession. But there are many people within the profession um, who want are seeking that work-life balance, as you Absolutely. say. And... Um, because they are people with families and needs as well. They're not a, um, you know, they're not workforce fodder, which is how many people, I think, um, perhaps are feeling within some of the systems mm-hmm. of care at the moment. And they simply see that as unsustainable for, you know, for, from their own health perspective and for their family. Um, so, we, you know, we need a major shake-up um, mm. around systems, systems thinking and systems issues. One example, um, and, and, you know, I, I just ha- am privileged, I guess, to have these discussions with many of our postgraduate students at the moment. That's another benefit, who face all different sorts of challenges in their work sites, wh- wherever they are, across the country. And one of the things um, people are wanting is creative solutions. You know, p- access to flexible working arrangements um, that take account of their needs as well. They have a, it's, it's a bit like, you know, our older population. I think often we have many elders um, and we don't value it enough in many in Western culture as highly as some other um, groups do. There's a whole lot of wisdom at mm. that end um, or, or later in life that is just unharnessed and untapped. And we have a lot of skill um, and knowledge that is not being harnessed effectively mm. um, at the moment within our workforce and within our um, health system because of, you know, some of those are. Uh, either lack of flexibility or creativity, dare I say it. Creativity is so important to to solving problems, wicked problems, you know, that, that seem intractable and you just overcome one challenge and then you get presented with another one. So you have to be creative. And when I speak at the moment again, because a lot of people in the postgraduate space are midwives working or working toward changing um, practice uh, wherever they are or changing models of care or changing policy, um, they they want creative solutions um, to different solutions than the same old, which is often what's uh, being proposed to them. And also I think humanistic solutions as well that take in 
that actually acknowledge and respect the human factor part of it. Yeah, oh, we could have a whole <laughs> other podcast um, on this, and you will with, with other <laughs> with other people very specialised in the set. You know, it, you just take me straight to respectful maternity care. It, yep. If I can frame it all up under under that, you know, basic respect for persons, humanism, or, or whatever um, label you want to put on it. But I think some of the issues at the moment within our institutionalised settings and our approaches to care. And a lot of the problems that are happening um, within those systems, whether they be safety issues or communication issues or professional interprofessional relationships or women's um, satisfaction or dissatisfaction with care, um, are are all related back to that basic um, lack of, of respect or, or humanistic paradigm. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, yeah, that should be a core feature <laughs> in health, in human well, services. You would, so. you would think so, kind of like everywhere, really. I want to go back to your PhD. So did you do yours full-time or part-time? I did mine um, part-time, yes. So I... I um, I had undertaken a uh, women women's health coursework masters prior to coming into PhD pathway, and so when I applied, um, I was fortunate enough to have access to a, a foundation fellowship through the um, through the health and hospital service I was working with, and. Um, that was a, a wonderful opportunity because I might not have been able to have started without that, um, give, given my circumstance at the time. And I came into, I wasn't able, eligible at that point educationally to come straight into a PhD. Yep. So I came in um, through a Master um, of Research, Research Masters, and I, what they called at that time, upgraded. Yep. I was assessed yep. and I upgraded um, into PhD after that. Yeah, and I completed my PhD essentially over uh, when I when I add all that up, it seems like a long time, but it, <laughs> about six years. Yeah. How did you maintain your sanity and your your drive to keep going? Because it is a long period of time doing it part time with life, with family, with a job. How did you keep your sanity and the interest going? Yeah, I think, look, the, the advice I was given and would give to others, where if you are undertaking a dissertation or a PhD, make sure you are very interested in the topic and committed to it. Um, yeah. and, and also there's a there's another um, piece of advice there related to um, to supervision that's coming. but um, but certainly for me, I was highly motivated uh, and, and still am around around the topic and the issue of access and, and enhancing access. So that helps because um, you need you need to have something that you are quite committed to. The time factor, I think you get support from different people and places and you need different support at different times. So friends, you do need a community of practice. We sort of call it now, yeah. but a community of like-minded people, which is why, you know, having groups, you know, uh, other um, students on the journey mm -hmm. 
with you and being able to connect with them is absolutely vital. Having supportive family who sometimes understand and sometimes don't, you know, about this thing you're doing that's taking so long and that's um, consuming all your time and passion sometimes, you know, um, and taking you away from from other um, things. And also for me, yeah, so there, there were key people along the journey, both within family and friends and also collegial, you know, support yeah. to keep um, to keep on the journey, even when it was like, oh, what am I doing? Because, <laughs> you know, there, there are hurdles. There, it's, um, it's not a, a flat line or a round circle. It's a, um, it's a weaving, wending. <laughs> oh, very much, force. very much. <laughs> um, yeah, and and um, there can be really low points, and then there can be you know high points where you have a breakthrough. Um, yeah. yeah. What did you do when you reached those low points? Often, some people would point that out to me. I know I had one good friend when I was getting closer, not right at the end, but when I was in in a doldrum, I'll call it a doldrum hump, and I just thought, oh, what is the point of this? You know, it's not going to make it much difference to anyone da 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 and and it's taking so long and I'm never going to finish it and they um essentially provided space and place and time oh. by extracting me from the range of other commitments you know busy, busy people are always being drawn upon for other things yes. and um you know yeah whether whether that's your work or other other people, you know, seek, seeking to source you for either services or knowledge or other <laughs> other aspects of of your your being, you know, that they see value in. So that was very um, helpful to me, and so was um, the supervisory support at, at different times as well um, along that journey. You know, re- really good critical advice sometimes advice you didn't want to hear, um, yep. but, but also um, compassionate advice too. Um, and some of it was around making um, decisions around, okay, th- here's a blockage, w- what needs to happen here? And yep. m- making some critical decisions around that. So did you pick your own supervisors? Were they given to you? How did you go about gaining supervisors? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So for me, I'd actually had an intention or a desire to, to undertake my PhD probably 10 years before I got, I got <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, which is what happens in life too. And I do remember it was when I went back into the public um, sector to take on or, or to undertake this change implementation. And I remember my partner at the time saying to me, oh, well, which one of these things are you going to do? Your PhD, this big job, um, or something else? Oh, yes, I had on the burner. And I said, oh, well, all of them, of course. And they said, well, really? You you know, what do you want? A mental breakdown, a divorce, a, you know, a neglected child? You know, so too many competing things. So for me, um, I... And I had, uh, I'd actually already applied to to a different institution that I I eventually undertook my PhD through, and I had my eye on um on particular supervisors that I thought at the time 
would be the ones that I'd be wanting. Um, so that didn't transpire. And I guess the lesson here or the message is you can often plan. Planning yeah. is good. Um, yeah but the plan has to change. And my yeah. plan did change. It was like, okay, no, not doing that. Really want to do this other job and process. So then when the opportunity came again or the motivation came again, <laughs> I really do want to do this and now I want to do it because we are having all these um, blockages from decision makers who should be expanding and accelerating these services and I have to deal with all these angry women, you know, <laughs> and and also I might say um, workforce, people who are keen to work in these models yeah. who are not um, being... Their capacity too. Yeah, their capacity isn't being developed. So a whole range of things need to happen here. How are we going to get more and how are we going to make it happen? And, okay, let's do a cost, some sort of um, costing argument because everyone likes a cost argument. Um, return on investment, yes. Return on investment. And look, there was support to do that. So I took that opportunity. Um, one of the limitation um, was, um, and again, it, it might be a limitation or an opportunity, um, was it? Um, I, I needed to undertake my PhD within uh, a more limited range than what I would yep. have had option to if I just said, right, I'm going there and I'm going to fund all this yeah. myself. Um, however, however, that that was a um, what have you said, a compromise um, mm. I made, and then I stalked appropriate <laughs> supervisors at at the next at, um, decision point, you know, at yeah. that institution, and I deliberately um, selected. I don't know if I've ever told um, them. Um, but particularly one of my principal supervisors, I did not necessarily select someone who I thought was going to agree with me about everything. Nice. I deliberately selected someone who I knew, knew would challenge me because I'd read other of their work um, and some of their ideas did challenge me and some of my ideas probably challenged them. So that's nice. really, um, for me, that critical... Um, uh, debate mm. is um, is useful, and it's not only useful. I think it's essential, um, not not only at the PhD level, but more broadly. Um, you know, people who never change their mind are like stagnant pools. Mm. We, you know, if people can make a good critical argument or get you to see a different perspective, and then you have the opportunity to reflect on that, we can shift position. Yeah, our understanding and awareness um, changes and. You know, education and PhD journeys, I'm just thinking of someone else I've had the privilege to be involved with who um, has completed their PhD. We've had many conversations about this, that that um, ability to be able to critically think and to reflect, you know, where does it come from? Can it be learned? Can it be taught? Yes, we believe it can. Some people um, have capacity or develop capacity at different times but also our own ability or at least my own I've recognized in recent years to look back on certain behavior or interactions or learning and then reanalyze it in another yeah. way yeah. Um, can be quite profound for, mm. for insights that move us um, forward developmentally as a as a human being as an individual but then also when we participate in 
discourse and conversations with others, you know, um, or, or have the opportunity to do that, it can move um, other things along, mm. you know, more, more productively. And I do believe that change process, you know, I've, I've lived it, I've seen it um, <laughs> in spaces where you think, oh, it's never going to change or that that person or that group are the problem, the obstacle, the block. And look, they may be, but they may not be. Um, yeah. It may just need a different, uh, sometimes it needs a different strategy. Sometimes it needs a better understanding yeah. um, and communication and dialogue with those groups to reach a place where everyone can move along to a different space, you know, and that's that's the challenge, I think, about system change. You know, one mm. of the insights for me um, in recent um, years. Well, working with where you come from, which is granted within the healthcare system but still very much focused on women and, and other midwives, when you're looking at system changes, you're working with a whole pile of different professions that are looking at the same problem from a complaint. I, I keep visualizing the elephant with everyone kind of like a thousand people standing around they're all looking at the same thing but their point of view is very different because it depends on where they are what they're coming from what their knowledge is and how they're interpreting interpreting it's been an end of the week interpreting the data that they're seeing yeah yeah it it, it is and if we can't understand if we can't communicate um you know, or have that relationship to understand where each each person or each group is coming from, then you've immediately got a, you know, got, got an issue um, there. One of the, again, the power of education, you know, one of the beautiful things about um, having the privilege of reading other people's reflections, you know, written, written reflections on work um, is you'll see those insights come through clearly. Oh, mm. we were having a discussion or an interview or critical incident debriefing about this and I never realised or the person or whatever or the group actually assumed or they knew nothing about my role or this or that. And it's like, wow, you know, this is actually really basic. But until that those processes yep. are invoked, um, it's like that's the beginning before any of the other stuff can happen. What's one really surprising thing that came out of your PhD? Oh. Well, something that still resonates, brings up emotion now, kind of like so far after it's finished. Look, fin finishing in it. In itself, uh, <laughs> finishing yes, in itself, indeed. completion it is yeah. very important um, because so many things can remain uncompleted sometimes. Um, and when they do, you know, people can feel like they've failed. But, mm -hmm. you know, as, as someone said to me, look, there's no such thing as failure. It's just the success hasn't been achieved yet, hmm. whatever that means, you know, to different people. I guess for me, I, you know, I was... Um, not hell-bent, that oh, I do want to use that word, but I was very determined because often 
uh, we carry our assumptions and our biases with us. So yes. my assumption and bias in relation to my PhD was I want to do this because I want to show, you know, the, the, these women with, with really complex um, pregnancies r- r- ranging from, you know, from moderate to very pointy end are getting better outcomes and they're costing um, less money for the system. And look, some of these other really important indicators that we measure um for health outcomes are better for these mother and babies. I expected to find um, those things. I won't say I was shocked or surprised, but I was reminded and and it came through clearly in the data for me, which is probably why access is now such a big issue, that specific women within the cohort, i.e. women um, from different backgrounds, backgrounds and ethnicities um, cost a lot more. However, the story there, um, which which is an untold story, but it makes common sense to me, those women cost a lot more because we're not giving them the appropriate relationship-based care um, that they should be getting (laughs) based on our own evidence um, robust evidence at the moment. And so what are we actually doing about that? What am I doing about this? What what needs to happen about this um, issue? Because it's an important issue, not, not just from, from a cost or money mm. perspective, but for these particular groups. Um, you know, again, we the term seems to be priority groups at the moment, but often they're groups with... Um, a lot poorer outcomes than the rest of the community. And that is something that's been long-standing, long-standing, and we've known about for a long time. So what are we doing about it? <laughs> and that's understanding the differences between um, equality, equity and justice. And it's you can have everyone supposedly has access in Australia to the, to the same healthcare but if you are rural or if you've got no transport or if you live kind of too far away or if you've got multiple kids and you've got no support networks, yeah, you may technically have access to it, but physically it's not going to happen. That's exactly right. And and so it begs the question, how are we going to make it happen? <laughs> you know? Or that that's becomes the, um, I suppose, the driver for, for people who care enough about an issue um, and communities, you know, I'm just thinking some of the project at the moment that um, I've been able to be involved with communities that understand that clearly yeah. um, for themselves and are invested in their communities um, are standing up for that and are not settling for mm. anything less from their decision makers as as they shouldn't. Um, Absolutely, because the power comes from the community. They're the ones living and breeding it. They are a community because of the the people that are there. So they have the right to demand and the services that they they expect. Yeah, and I so so again for me, I think you know in terms of all the, the, that education, all these projects, and wh- what have I learned? It is about. I mean, in my gut, I know these things already, but we set, we need to have the logical and to be able to make the logical argument and and the dialogue and communicate the understanding, but that top-down and that imposition 
of we know what's best for you or this is how this service operates or this is what you can have. That just does not work and it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. It hasn't worked. (laughs) No. And it's not translating. Yeah. So how did you celebrate? When you finally finished it, you got over that kind of doldrum, you, um, you finished it. What did you do to celebrate? Well, probably not enough, Liz. (laughs) It's never too late. No, it's true. And I do reflect on this because what I did was actually change jobs and didn't take space to, you know, directly afterwards, which was, which I would advise everyone to do. Uh, You know, again, the the beauty of hindsight, we often leap right into the next, or I, I tend to leap right into the next thing. And taking that time can be important. I did celebrate with my, with my supervisors. Um, we went out, we had a beautiful um, meal, you know, I thanked them um, very much for their investment in me because it is a huge investment of time and um, I was going to say trouble. Mm, some, yeah. some students we'll, we'll <laughs> I know um, one of my work, former work colleagues who's now retired told me that I just about killed one of my supervisors. I don't quite know how to interpret that. Um, but um, anyway, I think they just meant there were a lot of challenges. But um, n- nevertheless, uh, you know, yeah, my, my supervisors were integral to my success and staying the course with me. And then my family, you know, we, we celebrated um, after after the PhD as well. Um, yeah, which I was a bit sad. My my dad passed the year before, so I had yet a you know an, an extent another extension on my on my time because you know beginning of life, end of life, um, yeah. we make our choices about you know what's important and um, you know having the opportunity if we're talking about humanistic care and dignity and the ability to, to assert your wishes. My father wanted to be cared for at home um, yeah. in his own environment and that, you know, self-determination at end of life is as important as it is as at beginning of, yeah. of life. Um, so so in some sense I was sad my father didn't um, live long enough to actually see the completion but probably six months before he passed, I remember asking, knowing he was unwell, and he said, oh, you know, they've given me three months. It's longer than that. And I said, oh, you're going to be, you're going to, you know, be there at the end. And he said, I don't think it's going to be quite that long. And he he was right, yeah. Yes. But nevertheless, in, in spirit, I'm sure he was there, yeah. So what have you used with what you've learnt doing it as a student? to now flipping that role and being a supervisor, what have you taken with you that is the good parts or what have you left that were the bad parts? Yeah, that's a great question. For me, a lot of reflection on that because you do, we all have different supervisory experiences um, and there's good bits and there's challenging bits. Um and being able to appreciate, I think, the, the significance of that relationship for someone, you know, coming into a PhD um, and how that's going to be different with different um, people 
you know, it's going to look different and the challenges are going to be different and perhaps the, the strategies or approaches need to be different. Mm. Well, they will be different with different students. And I, and that's actually okay. Uh, yes, I think that's okay because, you know, we love, human beings love to sort of um, categorise or label or find the model or the concept, you know, yeah. or the paradigm, <laughs> the, the, the thing that explains it all. And, you know, hum, human beings are just unexplainable, their behaviour sometimes. Um but that relationship is important. So in terms of, you know, putting yourself in the shoes of the person undertaking the PhD, choosing um, supervisors is a um, is, is a really critical part of, of the process and care should be taken with that. But I also believe really strongly those challenges encountered on the way again it's just a part of human relationship and working through those um is about the process and and is just as valuable you know as as the product at the end of the journey because one of the things with supervision you know one of the high value things i think from a supervisor point of view is that ability to be able to have those wonderful conversations, you know, a bit like we're having now, um, about different ideas and concepts. Yeah. And that's the value in that for me is, you know, it really, um, it's, it's stimulating intellectually. Um, and whilst other things can be challenging behaviours on both sides mm -hmm. of the equation, supervisor and, um, and, um, person undertaking the PhD, you know, again, talking about that and finding a way through that is, um, is, is so important. I mean, I love a good challenge. So, yeah. <laughs> And I think that's where with a lot of the conversations I've had with people who still say that they're not smart enough to do a PhD or they're afraid to do it. And thankfully, I've had some feedback from people who've been listening to the podcast and gone, Actually, now I, I'm I'm interested. Now I want to try it, and it's just like, yay! But to start that conversation with someone who they respect or someone who's got that knowledge, and then to sit there and kind of go, but actually that's not what I want to do. That's not the direction that I'm going. And I know that when I've got because I've got honours and masters students that I supervise as well, and we kind of like sometimes we'll just go off on a fairy tale journey and talk about this, and then I'll go now now remember, now remember this is your study. We're just kind of brainstorming a little bit, but we're going to bring it back into what we're doing now, but that's just some other ideas. But to give them the confidence that they can speak up, to give, remind them that they do have the power, which is actually what we do with our women as well. So it's kind of trying to give them the same power that we hopefully kind of do when we advocate for our women. Yeah, look, I, I would agree totally that, you know, it's the language and words are always a problem sometimes or they cause problems. You know, that that idea about supervisor and, and you know, supervised, what does that mean? And and I think you've just hit the nail on the head. So for people um, or for many people, the assumption is that, you know, it, it's a subordinate relationship. Yeah. Definitely not. It's, a you know, a meeting of, of minds if <laughs> If you like, because yeah, doing a PhD is not about um, 
It's not about who's smart enough to do a PhD. It's about, I think, having a clearly defined uh, topic that you are invested in yeah. and motivated in and then having people around you with the skills to support you yeah. to answer the question or find out the information um, that, that you're wanting, you know, that you're seeking from, from the focus of your study. And it's about problem solving a lot of times when, oh, okay, we're going to do it like this, but that's not working. So, you know, w- what about this um, approach? And that respect, you know, we, yeah, we were talking mm. at the beginning, that sort of humanistic approach for want of a better word, but it's a relationship of respect, you know, um, not not a um, power relation or shouldn't be, Um I think that midwives have the advantage because I think with if you say that the supervision role is like having a midwife for a PhD, then midwives will get it. They'll understand what the support role is, whereas a lot of other professions just don't get it. So I think that they've lucked out. We've actually got the luck where it's like, well, actually, I'm I'm your midwife for your PhD. It's your PhD. It's your kind of like journey, but I'm the midwife. So I'm there kind of sitting, knitting in the background occasionally, and I'll come and poke you when I need to or kind of like remind you to do something but you're the one who's going to be kind of the one who has control. I love that analogy. I absolutely love it. And midwives do use those analogies. I I remember you've just taken me back to a conversation I was having with my um, one of my supervisors who sort of asked, you know, when I was in a doldrum and asked me how it was going. And I said, it's like a bloody obstructed labour and it's not <laughs> going anywhere. You know, it's not going uphill, downhill, nowhere. <laughs> See, that's the time when you need to do some exercise and get out and walk and try and move and open hips up a bit. Yes. So mm, So what's next? What are you doing now? Well, what I'm doing now is um, I'm involved in a range of of projects um, and tool development and um, supervision of... um, of um, higher high degree um, students, my primary role is as um, is as the director of primary maternity care programs at Griffith, and I do um, love the aspects of that role that are non administrative. I'm just going to put that. <laughs> There's a yep. <laughs> yep. And and what I love about it is the capacity to dialogue with. Um, with midwives in many different contexts and places um, at the moment. From a research perspective, I see my um, or my investment at the moment is in capacity building and in it's it's always been in that, you know, making more space or how do we get this to happen? Mm. And that um, again, that story I um talked about with my PNG colleague, and you're yep. going to interview her on these podcasts. Send um, me her very soon. And I will contact her. Absolutely, <laughs> because yeah, it 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 is um it is that sort of translation that you think, oh, that was worthwhile. That was, but that happened way back then, and it took this amount of time. And look what they're doing now, and look what each of those um students are going to do and we're planning a project as well so um when you say what next yeah there's many there's many things um there's many things next which is exciting it it is exciting um yeah we just need some extra 
bodies to um <laughs> <laughs> always need extra bodies yes um, with your students who are kind of unsure of what direction to follow they, they want to do a PhD they want to do further studies they've got a dozen ideas floating around their head as we always do um we've talked about the fact that you've got to love it but how do you narrow it down yeah that's that again is a great question because the answer to that is some people at least in what I have seen is some people approach their PhD with a passion and an investment around a specific topic. They're very clear about what they wanted, what they want to do and why, or or should I put why they want to do it? That the the what yeah. and the um and the how might be less clear, but that's generally something that you can flesh out and um w- with some assistance and guidance um from from either colleagues or um or or potential supervisors. Um, and other um, people approach the PhD pathway, le- less so in midwifery, I think, but in other disciplines where they actually come on as part of a project team yeah. to other people. And so I've, I've spoken to a number of people who've done their PhD that way. And um, some of those people are very circumspect and say, look, if you just want to, you, if you're happy to um, piggyback on someone else's project and don't mind and want to um, develop skills and just get this done in a um, yeah. very uh, defined space of time, then that's fine. In my experience, I haven't found many midwives in that can be no, one. They have several issues. <laughs> yes, they often come, as you've said, with a whole lot of, oh, I've got all this broad range of things that I possibly might like to do. And um, that's really difficult because well, it will, it's difficult for them because the challenge is at the end of the day, you need to make a um, a choice. Mm. There are choices and you need to narrow it down. And so for some people, I think the process is about sitting with that, you know, seeking some advice, having some discussion, then going away, thinking more clearly um, about those options and what aspect or what topic is it that they they are really invested in and what's going to maintain their interest and or what skills are they going to need and want to develop mm. um, or possibly are not going to want to develop um because again they're they're that's all you know part of of that yeah. decision making and then also thinking about well and who who is best able to support me in this yeah. from a, from a supervisory perspective, and I will just say from my own ex, uh, my own personal experience, what I found on my journey was um, my I had three supervisors, and each of them um, offered me uh, different um, yeah. different qualities and different knowledge um, at different time and all of those knowledges were essential for my completion and and for my support Um, yeah and and actually that's okay I think when when you can recognize that and bring in what is required that's a really that was a really important um, part of my journey Um, yeah a panel can there's such um, strength in having a panel that fits the different components and different facets of what you're doing. Yeah, because, look, I know some student can feel uh, 
or, or have reported, you know, if you read the literature, uh, uh, conflicted, you know, conflicted, conflicting advice from different supervisors. So that can be a challenge to, mm. you know, to be overcome. But also getting the right skills you need um, mm. to complete your project is important um, as well. And thank you very much for giving me some time on a Friday night. Thank you for indulging me, Liz, because it's been great to have the conversation, actually. It's, yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. You'll find all the links on Twitter, Instagram, and on the podcast website. If you are a midwife and you would like to share your research, your postgraduate studies, or even the quality improvement projects you are doing now, then email me at throughthepinard at gmail.com. Send me a tweet or send me a DM. 